This is Africa Digest. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. With your latest news, I'm Onelin Tsinsi. Ugandan opposition leader Bobby Wine has urged the international community to call for the lifting of his house arrest the day after the announcement of the disputed results of the presidential election that reappointed President Yoram Museveni for a sixth term in office. The opposition leader has also called for international sanctions against the president, the release of political prisoners and an international audit of the election. Bobby Wino's real name is Robert Kiaglani, claims he has videos of ballot boxes stuffing soldiers forcing voters to choose or pre-checked ballots. Head of the World Health Organization, Tedro Ghebreyesus, says the world is on the verge of a catastrophic moral failure over the way COVID vaccines are being distributed. There are concerns that vaccine doses are being procured in large amounts by wealthier countries for the detriment of poorer nations. The WHO has set up the COVAX facility to assist with equal distribution, speaking at the WHO's executive board meeting. Cabrezis said the greed of manufacturers and wealthier nations would further prolong the pandemic and result in more families losing loved ones. This failure will be paid with lives and livelihoods in the world's poorest countries. Even as they speak the language of equitable access, some countries and companies continue to prioritize bilateral deals, driving up prices and attempting to jump to the front of the queue. South Africa's Health Minister Dr. Zuelim Kize will on Monday evening lead a scientific panel discussion on the new variant of the coronavirus 541.V2. Professor Salim Abdul Karim, an infectious disease specialist at the Research Innovation and Sequencing Platform at the University of KwaZulu-Natal and Dr. Richard Lezel, are expected to be part of the panel. The new variant has seen a surge in infections that has placed additional strain on the country's healthcare facilities, Minushni Pile reports. On January 17th, over 12,000 new infections were reported, bringing the total number of COVID-19 cases in South Africa to over 1,337,000 infections. South Africa is currently battling over 202,000 active cases. Addressing the nation earlier this month, President Cyril Ramaphosa warned that the new variant was more infectious than the first strain and called for increased diligence from all South Africans. 
Rwanda and Malawian authorities have shut schools, including nurseries, as COVID-19 cases surge. Rwanda closed schools just in the capital, Kigali, but the education minister said schools in other regions would also shut if more cases are confirmed there. It comes after schools reopened in November after eight months of being closed. The country has reported more than 11,000 cases and 142 deaths since the outbreak. Malawi said it would shut schools for at least 15 days and announced all bars were also closed at 8 p.m. local time. Africa has reported over 3.1 million cases and more than 76,000 deaths. A judge in Moscow has ruled that Russian opposition activist Alexei Navalny must remain in custody for at least 30 days. Another hearing next week will determine whether he will complete a third and a half year prison sentence for alleged embezzlement. The case has, however, been criticized by the European Court of Human Rights. Navalny was arrested on his return to the country on Sunday. He was returning to the country five months after he was almost killed in a nerve agent attack he blamed on Russian authorities. Moscow has denied any role. Channel Africa News, I am Onilin Sinzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Kicking it off with our first story, starting over uh, to the East African nation of Uganda, where the political situation remains tense and unpredictable after the Electoral Commission declared Yoweri Museveni as the winner of the 2021 presidential election. However, pop star and controversial opposition politician Bobby Wine asserts that he is the winner and alleges that the 76-year-old Museveni won through massive voting fraud. James Shimanyula takes up the story. Shortly after Yoweri Museveni was declared the winner of this year's presidential election, traditional victory drum beats were played. Take a listen. Speaking shortly after being declared by Uganda's Electoral Commission as the winner, Museveni explained why pop star Bobby Wine and nine other opposition politicians lost the election. There was no serious mobilization. I was going around. Ugandans spontaneously, without much mobilization, have rejected the line of sectarianism. You, you saw the voting. Massive. So, the people of Uganda have rejected the politics of sectarianism. The people of Uganda have stuck to the ideology of patriotism, love Uganda, Pan-Africanism, love Africa, and democracy. And uh, in this term, we shall reaffirm the ideology of patriotism and Pan-Africanism and reject sectarianism and parochialism. 
Although in his speech Museveni used sectarianism and parochialism, apparently as two separate words with different meanings, scholars say parochialism and sectarianism are semantically related, turning to foreigners who time after time ask him why he has not retired after practicing politics for 60 years, Museveni said rhetorically. Yes, I've been in politics for 60 years because of the aims. If they are fulfilled, I would do happily retire. Museveni verbally attacked international journalists for taking sides by reporting that Bobby Wine was on the edge of winning foreigners are shallow. They are not serious. They were analyzing. There's a high turn-up. We had the BBC and the Arab channel called Al Jazeera, which is also a problem, apparently. Now listen to Museveni as he comically imitates reports aired by the two international television stations that he has named. This high turn-up in Uganda, and this high turn-up is like to favor Bobby White. Explaining why votes cast in his favor were more than votes garnered by Bobby White, Museveni said. Now, Museveni has got 6 million votes. Bobby White has got 3 million and something. So, if all the youth voted for Bobby White, then how did Museveni get all these votes? Shallow, shallow, shallow. Don't talk about things you don't know. The majority of the youth support the NRM. The NRM that Museveni is speaking about is the political wing of the then Rebel National Resistance Army, NRA, which fought a Bush war that brought Museveni to power in 1986. Backing his allegation that there was massive voting fraud in this year's presidential election, Bobby Wine provided several factors. There was no secret ballot in most polling stations. The military gave people pre-ticked ballots. They gave them pre-ticked ballot papers. In other cases, some people were ordered to vote from the desk in the presence of everyone. I am very confident that we defeated the dictator by far. I call upon all Ugandans to reject the blackmail. We have certainly won this election and we've won it by far. General Museveni and his small clique of oppressors are trying yet again to impose themselves on the people of Uganda. The chairperson of the Electoral Commission is not in charge at all. Several operatives have been deployed there for several days. Several of our phone numbers, including mine and my wife, have been switched off. They've been disconnected illegally. The military is deployed everywhere. The dictatorship is in panic. Right from the beginning, we have stood by the law. We are law-abiding citizens. We are non-violent. We are not criminals. We do everything we do within the law. That was Ugandan pop stand controversial opposition politician Bobby Wine. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Malawi's president, Lazarus Chakwera, has ordered the closure of all schools for the three weeks uh, as coronavirus cases continue to rise with over 5,000 cases recorded since the start of this month. In his address to the nation last night, the Malawi leader, however, said students in boarding schools will remain in their campuses to allow health authorities to ascertain whether it is safe for the students to go home. George Mhango with the details from Blantai. According to President Lazarus Chakwera, religious gatherings and all gatherings will now be limited to 50 persons. Markets will be closing at 5 p.m. People found in public without first mask will be fined and all persons will be allowed to wander around socially between 9 p.m. and 5 a.m. 
He also said the Minister of Justice will gazette new guidelines recommended by a ministerial committee. These include the directive that all drinking places should be closing at 8 p.m. Bar owners should not allow people to consume beer on the premises. The Minister of Health will outline the other regulations to be enforced after they've been gazetted. In conclusion, let me say in no uncertain terms that these measures require that we accept some hard truths. One, we must all accept that COVID-19 is here, that it will be here for some time, that it is real, and that it kills. Those of you talking about this virus like it is far away or like it will magically disappear must stop. Two, we must all accept that as a country, we do not have unlimited amounts of money to do whatever we fancy. Some in this country are in the habit of making proposals that require billions in funds without stating where such funds will come from. As a nation, this luxury of living in fantasy land is one we do not have. We must make all our decisions within the reality of our situation. And our situation is that we are a country with a debt of 4.1 trillion kwacha. And we do not have all the money in the world to fight this pandemic. The Malawi leader then warned that Malawians must accept that coronavirus is here and will be here for some time. He urged people to follow preventive measures in order to defeat the virus, saying government measures will not contain the virus if people are not adhering to the measures. We must all accept that the scale of the pandemic demands a change of priorities. This is important to say because there are some who are still obsessed with politics, some who are still obsessed with cabinet appointments and reshuffles, and some who are still obsessed with campaign promises that were made on assumptions and in conditions that no longer hold. When a ship is at sea and it comes across an accident, unexpected rapids and it is hit by an unexpected storm only a foolish captain would insist on maintaining the same course we must all accept that our health facilities do not have the capacity to treat the numbers of people being infected because of decades of neglect and plunder in the health sector this pandemic has found us at a time when our hospitals and clinics are in a sorry state. Malawi also closed schools from March to September last year, but there were concerns over disruption of academic calendar and a rise in child sexual abuse. The country has registered close to 300 deaths to COVID-19 since 2020. George Mohango, China Africa Blantyre. Zambian schools that were supposed to open today have been moved to 1st of February 2021 following a sharp rise in the number of COVID-19 cases being recorded in the country. But what do stakeholders have to say about this? Arthur Skopa reports from Lusaka. It is another two weeks holiday for Zambian schools. Schools in Zambia were Monday, 18th January 2021, supposed to open, but they have been given another additional two weeks in view of COVID-19 cases that are escalating in the country. Zambia's president, Edgar Lungu, last Friday made the abrupt change of the opening date following a surge in cases of COVID-19 being recorded. 
Mr. Longo said the move to change the opening date would also allow authorities around the country to prepare adequately for the learners and also have all necessities and prevention guidelines being made so as to safeguard the environment for learners. Learners in Zambia in the year 2020 lost about seven months of their academic calendar as schools were closed for fear of learners contracting COVID-19. They moved to set 1st February 2021 as a reopening date for schools in the country has been welcomed by stakeholders. George Hamusunga is Executive Director, Aid Zambia National Education Coalition, ZANIC. The reopening of schools is good, but what needs to be done now is that it's not just waiting for two weeks to elapse. This is time to plan. This is time to prepare to ensure that the schools are ready and are certified, you know, safe for our children before they can move in. Mr. Hamusunga also shares other views on the reopening of schools. The coronavirus came at a time when our quality of education was at its knees. When government as well as the OECD and the Program for International Student Assessment revealed that only 5% of our 15-year-old children who are in grade 7 can barely read a simple passage. Now, when you take them out of school for a long time, the consequences are dire. We need to open the schools on account of the losses in competencies that we can have in our children due to the reduced learning time. And Media Network on Child Rights and Development, through Henry Kabwe, says the move is okay as it will help in planning and reorganization ahead of the reopening of schools. It was necessary extend by two weeks just to monitor the new strength, how it's uh, affecting people so that uh, stricter measures can be applied. Mr. Kabwe, who is also a parent, is concerned with children's well-being. I think uh, it is important that schools reopen and uh, as country that is still developing with a literacy level uh, you know at their lowest there is need for us to continue having these children in schools especially when it comes to those in identity areas it's safer for them to be in school than to be roaming around in compounds or markets or shopping malls zambia is in its second wave of covid 19 and the country is experiencing high cases being recorded daily today the country stands at over 37,000 cumulative cases over 26,000 recoveries and currently 10,000 are active cases, while about 550 have so far died. Arthur Desuscopo reporting for Channel Africa in Lusaka, Zambia. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment. To our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLeg to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa.
For your latest on the novel coronavirus disease for Channel Africa, Amoki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Hands touch many surfaces and can pick up viruses. Zimbabwe has been receiving an average of 50 millimeters of rainfall every day since the beginning of the year, leading to some floods in some areas in the cities. However, weather experts have warned more rains are coming and floods to be witnessed countrywide, threatening food security, as most plant would be a write-off. Zimbabwe experienced perennial floods in low-lying areas, but this year even elevated areas are also affected as the country receives above-normal rainfall, experts have revealed. Simon Muchemwa reports from Harare. Good rains are always welcome uh, and a source of good harvest in Zimbabwe. But with heavy, incessant rains and floods now being witnessed, there's a threat to human and wildlife and crops. As a result, weather experts have already warned the country is expecting heavy rains in the next coming days, and this could lead to more floods. Poor road network and drainage systems have already led to some flooding in cities, leading to the destruction of homes and crops. Human and animal lives have also been lost, hence the Civil Protection Unit, CPU, a state department mandated to save lives during disasters, has warned of flooding. Director of the CPU, Nathan Nkomo, has warned. According to weather experts, the current rainfall associated with the Inter-Tropical Convergence Zone, ITCZ, should persist throughout the week in the entire region. This will be associated with localized heavier downpours in excess of 30 millimeters in places. Soils are already saturated, hence any excess rains may lead to localized flash floods and downstream flooding, experts have warned. Villagers should expect collapse of huts and trees Meanwhile, citizens have been warned against crossing flooded rivers in this, as this has resulted in drowning and loss of lives. Nathan Nkomo added. Meanwhile, government has begun setting up disaster reaction plan for areas along the Zambezi catchment 
where thousands of families are threatened with floods. Every year, these families are either evacuated to safer places, but they always find themselves back in those areas as they feel fishing is their only source of livelihood. In Harare, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Mchema. The Democratic Republic of Congo has marked the 20th anniversary of the assassination of former President Laurent Desiree Kabila with calls for reconciliation. Kabila Sr. is the former also the father of former President Joseph Kabila, who took over power from his father in 2001. The late Laurent Desiree Kabila came to power in 1997 after ousting long-serving dictator Mobutu Sese Seko. Channel Africa's Kumbelo Mujalele reports. It was the assassination that tore the sprawling country apart. Laurent Desiree Kabila, also known as Mzi, was shot dead by a bodyguard in 2001 and a military trial that followed jailed dozens of soldiers, including Colonel A.D. Kapend, his personal aide. But 23 of the arrested soldiers have since been released after spending nearly two decades behind bars. Their release followed pardons issued by the current president, Felix Chisik who took over from Joseph Kabila, the son of the late president two years ago. Laurent Kabila was the leader of a rebellion that overthrew President Mobutu Sasaseko of the then Zaire in 1997 and restored the country's name. There has been much speculation about who gave the orders for Laurent Kabila's assassination 20 years ago, including suggestions that foreign powers were involved as his killing came at a time when and several neighboring countries were involved in the conflict in the DRC. After Laurent Kabila's assassination, his son, Joseph Kabila, then a 29-year-old, took over, but the Kabila dynasty ended in 2019 with the swearing-in of Felix Chisigedi, son of former Prime Minister Etienne Chisigedi. Chisigedi's ascension to power marked the first peaceful transfer of power to the opposition. In Lubumbashi in Katanga province, large crowds of supporters from former president Joseph Kabila's party turned up to pay homage to his late father who is seen by some as one of the symbols for the country's freedom and who followed in the footsteps of Patrice Lumumba in his four years in charge. The freeing of soldiers accused of killing Laurent Kabila came in the midst of a political crisis between Chisikedi and his predecessor Joseph Kabila amid a power struggle between current president Chisikedi and Kabila Jr., who continues to wield considerable influence in the country, Chisikedi ended his coalition with Kabila's party, which holds a majority in parliament following years of tension. The president is currently seeking new coalition partners that will give him a majority in parliament. While many in the DRC have appealed to Kabila's family to forgive and forget about Laurent Kabila's assassination for the country to move forward, the jury is still out on whether the Kabila Bila family has heeded the calls. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbero Munjarere in Johannesburg. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land.
Masterclass Africa, where great minds connect. An explorative one-on-one talk show that seeks to tackle issues of leadership and consciousness on the African continent and around the world. Masterclass comes to you every Fridays, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock Central African time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Building Africa with love. Hujambo Africa. If there are holes in this continental ship, we are its children. Let us go and stop the holes. Let us gladly do it with our hearts. And if we cannot, then let us die. We will make a plug of our brains and put them into the ship, but condemn it never. Catch us on Channel Africa from 10 to 11 a.m. every Friday and Sundays from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Zochitika, mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. 17.30 Central African Time. It's time for your latest news headlines. Here's Onilin Sinsi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Head of the World Health Organization, Tedros Kibresis, says the world is on the verge of a catastrophic moral failure over the way COVID vaccines are being distributed. A South African humanitarian aid organization, Gift of the Givers, claims that the COVID-19 death figures released by the country's Department of Health are way less than the actual numbers. And a judge in Moscow has ruled that Russian opposition activists, Alexei Nevelin, must remain in custody for at least 30 days. Channel African News, I am Onelin Sinsi. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. The cannabis trade could dramatically bolster South Africa's economy if authorities followed global trends and eased the country's prohibition uh, regulated industry. Uh, according to the Cannabis Trade Association of Africa, CTAA. The newly formed association says South Africa's archaic regulations are out of sync with the global move to deregulate cannabis production and trade to meet international demand for a wide range of industrial, textile and medicinal products. Anthony Cohen 
founding member of the CTAA, tells us more. We formed the CTAA uh, uh, in the middle of last year in really to combat and give the entire industry an ability to talk to government and talk to the regulators. We've had a, a big disconnect. They haven't really discussed things with industry and they've been passing uh, regulations without any involvement or, in our opinion, scientific merit. The CTAA Africa is linked to the CTA UK, which is the largest hemp uh, association in Europe, which I was also a founding member. And our objectives are to create a fair regulating uh, environment for the industry to promote business and the economic advancement of the, you know, previously disadvantaged people around the country. Anthony, what is your main um, uh, concern with the manner in which the industry has been handled um, in, in this part of the continent? You know, there's a number of concerns. Firstly, we, we need regulations that are going to promote cannabis and, and kickstart the economy. Mm. At, the moment, at the moment, we've got regulations that are out of sync with international norms. We've got a, a THC limit of 0.001%, which is the lowest limit anywhere in the world. We have limits, for example, in Sweden, uh, Switzerland, and parts of Europe with up to 3% THC, which is a huge difference. Um, And at those levels, THC is totally non-psychoactive anyway. We've had uh, the government create, uh, well, they voted in favor of dropping all regulations with cannabis uh, at the UN recently. Um, and the UN only passed one of the resolutions to take CBD out of uh, the narcotic scheduling. So we can see a move by governments to move forward, yet we have a private p- public partnership company called SAFRA that has significantly hamstrung the industry, where we have uh, hemp production at the moment moving towards agriculture, but we still don't have licenses that are available to create mm. products in the market. They're only testing licenses. And at a 0.01% THC in the field, we can't really grow here in South Africa because of our high UV. We need a much higher level. We need to deregulate it and create an industry that allows everybody to participate without these hugely onerous um, fees and uh, things that one needs to to do to be able to get a license. In some instances, millions and millions of rands mm, where, those, mm. where those things are not necessary to grow certain types of products. Now, Anthony, in the U.S., um, legislative developments are also underway, um, which could, of course, further ease restrictions on cannabis. Do you think that this could also open the way um, of, of for further billions of dollars um, of cannabis-related business opportunities within the U.S.? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, first of all, we, you know, we've got a great climate here in South Africa. Mm. Uh, we, we could grow three crops a year where in the U.S., Canada, they can only grow one crop a year. We've got relatively cheap land. We also have a large number of rural farmers that we can put to use uh, with the correct seed, do cooperatives, farming, and, and things like that. So we, and we just have, have an exchange rate that's favorable for export. So things are, are really stacking up in our favor to rapidly provide products for the international uh, community, of which the States is one, Europe is another, you know, around the world we could, we could be supplying cannabis and cannabis-related products, not only in medicinal products, but also uh, for fiber, 
for plant, for uh, building materials. There's over 4,000 different uses of the hemp plant just on its own. So that's where we think could be the easy first wins within the cannabis sector. And we really want to promote those, uh, those wins and bring in our disadvantaged, previously disadvantaged rural community to be able to, to grow these plants. Now, uh, a CC, um, CTAA has uh, been established um, to offer those um, in the cannabis industry also a platform um, uh, to voice and, and lobby for fair regulations. Um, how has your um, association been received um, by people in the industry? Are you getting those people coming on board um, and using you um, as a mouthpiece for them? Yes, it's been received pretty well. We have a number of very key uh, companies already as members. Mm-hmm. Uh, mainly CBD providers at this stage. We have one or two companies that are, you know, medical marijuana growers also in the wings. And we have already successfully lobbied uh, Safra to get CBD deregulated. I, I think it was a year and a half ago, two years ago. We did that in combination with a partnership with the Traditional Natural Health Alliance. And now we are lobbying SAFRA to move the regulations from this, what we think, ridiculous 20 milligrams a day daily limit and 600 milligrams maximum amount of CBD in the bottle um, to uh, really um, an environment where it is more profitable for, for the companies involved and for the customer out there to be able to take a higher dose because we know and the UN and the WH have done testing and have never been able to find an upper limit of CBD that becomes mm. dangerous. So there's no real reason to have these low limits. And that was the founding member of the Cannabis Trade Association Africa, Anthony Cohen, on the line to Zikona Muso. While attention remains focused on developing a vaccine for COVID-19 globally, scientists continue to battle a de- to develop a vaccine for HIV, a virus that has plagued countries for decades. So far, COVID-19 has resulted in over 2 million deaths worldwide and severely crippled economies. The focus on developing a vaccine for COVID-19 has raised concerns over the neglect of HIV interventions. There are fears that a hidden crisis may be brewing, especially in countries like South Africa. Nevertheless, the HIV fight will be in the spotlight during the HIV Research for Prevention Conference, due to be held virtually later this month. Jane Rabutata reports. Since COVID-19 was declared a global pandemic, scientists have been concerned that this new public health emergency threatens to reverse hard-earned gains in the HIV battle. Recently addressing a group of journalists across the globe ahead of the HIV Research for Prevention Conference, world-renowned physician and immunologist from the United States, Dr. Anthony Fauci, reflected on how COVID is overshadowing efforts to end the HIV epidemic. When one talks about how we're going to get to the end game of ending the epidemic in the United States and then ultimately throughout the world, is to fill in the implementation gaps in addressing the pandemic with regard to testing, treatment, retention and care, viral suppression, prevention and harm reduction, things that we generally don't think of that are clearly related to ending the epidemic, namely food and housing security, and of course, the ever-present problem of stigma. Now, in the middle of what looks like a successful campaign in the sense of getting started and doing well with so many of the interventions that I mentioned, along comes 
a historic pandemic, the likes of which we've never seen in 102 years. Echoing sentiments that HIV is losing the attention it deserves as a result of COVID is Dr. Glenda Gray, a physician based in South Africa, a country that is home to the largest HIV population in the world, with 7.7 million people as of 2019. I have seen in my country in the last year during COVID-19 is that we've stopped diagnosing, we've stopped monitoring, and we've stopped initiating people on HIV treatment, which means that we have a huge HIV epidemic on our hands that is hidden by a COVID epidemic. And until we are able to control HIV, um, we will never, ever be able to find the Africa, the South Africa or the world that we want to live in. There are about 38 million people worldwide living with HIV. This is according to the latest global update by the Joint United Nations Programme on HIV and AIDS, that is as of 2019. In his address centered around ending AIDS through the COVID crisis, Dr. Fauci also reflected more on the grim statistics that the world sits with as far as HIV is concerned. The terrible numbers uh, that we tend to, I wouldn't say forget, but we get numbed to, that we have 1.7 million new infections each year and almost 700,000 deaths. And since the start of the pandemic, when you want to compare it historically with others, there have been about 76 million people who had been infected, and of those, about 33 million deaths. While there are a number of exciting interventions in managing HIV, an immune-based intervention that allows an immune response from our own bodies to protect against HIV acquisition remains crucial, as Dr. Gray explains. We have not been successful to date with an HIV vaccine. We have failed over and over again, and we failed in January 2019, and we have two HIV vaccine trials that are outstanding. And if we fail at these, um, do we close book or do we continue to endeavor to try and understand how the immune response will work to find a a response that does not require sustenance from monthly or twice yearly or one yearly interventions? And maybe we will never find an HIV vaccine. That doesn't mean we should not aspire for that. And without an HIV vaccine, I believe, we will be without or bereft of a fundamental tool to control the HIV pandemic. And so I think it is whether we fail and continue to fail, if we stop investigating and stop looking for immune-based tools to prevent HIV acquisition, it will be to the peril of humankind. Dr. Gray, who is president and chief executive officer of the South African Medical Research Council, was speaking to a group of health reporters preparing to cover the upcoming HIV science conference. The global event by the International AIDS Society was originally due to convene in South Africa's mother city of Cape Town last November, but is now happening virtually due to COVID. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabutata in Johannesburg. As many as 25,000 National Guard troops are expected on the streets of Washington, D.C. to ensure the inauguration of incoming U.S. President Joe Biden passes without problems. The city is braced for a potential extremist attack like the violence seen on January 6th when pro-Trump rioters broke into the Capitol building. FBI intelligence suggests more armed protests are planned. 
The mayor of D.C. has ordered a state of emergency and says the city is undergoing an unprecedented level of preparation. Nick Harper reports from Washington. A city under lockdown. Security fences have gone up. Thousands of armed National Guards have come out. These are some of the most extreme restrictions ever seen in the U.S. Capitol. Following the storming of Congress, the city has ramped up security preparations, adding to what was already planned for Joe Biden's inauguration. They want to make sure that the world sees that what took place a week and a half ago will never happen again in this country, because that was a total disgrace. Larry Cosme was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations at the last inauguration. I believe that the, all the security measures that are in place, based on the intelligence that's received, that it will be a secure inauguration. And you're still going to get protesters, don't, don't get me wrong, but they're going to be outside the perimeter. Seven-foot-high perimeter fence surrounds the Capitol building where Mr. Biden will be sworn in as president. Many of the roads in downtown D.C. have also been blocked with barriers or National Guard trucks. And this year, the National Mall, where tens of thousands of people usually gather to watch the event, will be completely closed to the public. The state of emergency will remain in place in the U.S. Capitol until the day after the inauguration. What's not clear is how much longer the security measures, like the fences and National Guard, will stay on into Joe Biden's presidency. D.C.'s mayor, Muriel Bowser, has warned that with the increased threat from violent extremists, she does not see the situation quickly returning to normal. And that report was Nick Harper from Washington, 1745 Central African Time. Here's Tracy Boomgard with your latest economics news. Thank you, Samora. Commuters in Zimbabwe are up in arms after the Zimbabwe United Passengers Company, Zupco, hiked public bus fares by 100%. Commuters say the hikes are unaffordable. Zupco announced that conventional buses will now cost $30, up from $16, and the price of combis went from $32 to $60. Consumer rights activist Effie Ngube says the price increase will continuously affect the poor, placing those goods and services beyond the reach of millions already suffering. China says it stands ready to strengthen coordination with Kenya in its efforts to address debt challenges. This is according to the Chinese embassy in Nairobi. China has already signed debt service suspension agreements with 12 African countries and provided waivers of matured interest-free loan for 15 African countries under the G20 framework. China has assisted Kenya with infrastructural development loans, which saw the completion of projects under the Thika Superhighway, the Mombasa-Nairobi-Naivisha Standard Gauge Railway and the ongoing construction of the Westlands Jomo Kenyatta International Airport Expressway. Labour unions Bimawu and the Communications Workers Union have unveiled plans for industrial action at the South African Broadcasting Corporation. It includes a motorcade to the union buildings, a go-slow and a four-hour blackout on Friday. 
Both unions had virtual meetings with their members. The the public broadcaster is pushing ahead with plans to retrench over 300 permanent employees and have already issued redundancy or surplus letters to hundreds of staff. CWU General Secretary Aubrey Shabalala says the protest action will comply with lockdown regulations and won't put members at risk of contracting the coronavirus. Of the, the spread of coronavirus, it will be a motorcade uh, which will leave SAPC on Wednesday morning. We'll be driving to union buildings. But when we arrive at a union building, a person will be receiving a memorandum from the presidency, which will be followed by actions such as Oslo on Thursday and uh, a massive, massive blackout on Friday between 11 a.m. till 3 p.m. As long as SAPC that has not responded positively to our demands, later on in the day will be unfolding program going forward. South Africa is currently losing between 45 and $60 million a day due to the ongoing load shedding implemented by power utility Eskom. This is according to calculations estimated by economist Mike Schusler. He says this is a cost the country cannot afford at the moment. Eskom says some generation units have yet to return to service. Eskom has been implementing stage two load shedding from last week. And that is a cost we cannot afford right now. We can catch up some of it, of course, but during a pandemic, it is going to be very likely that South Africa is again going to see a decline in its uh, GDP in the first quarter of this year, which will be a tremendous blow to our ability to attract investment, create jobs, and to get people fed and taxes in It is really and truly utterly worrying. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Finance Minister Rishi Sunak, together with business leaders, will discuss economic policy in an effort to explore ways of boosting growth in Britain outside of the European Union. This as Britain is hardest hit by a new variant of COVID-19, plunging the country into a worse economic slump than almost all of its peers. Johnson will speak to the leaders of some of Britain's largest companies, including British Airways, pharmaceutical company GlaxoSmithKline, and the country's biggest car maker, Indian-owned Jaguar Land Rover. The meeting will be an opportunity for members to share their views on the economy and provide a perspective on policy in terms of the economic recovery. Last week, the government denied a report that it was planning to lower standards on workers' rights. One U.S. dollars trading at 380.70 Nigerian Naira, 10.89 Botswana Pula, 109.13 Kenyan Shilling and 21.29 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollars trading at 5.29 Brazilian Hail, 73.45 Russian Ruble, 73.49 Indian Rupee, 6.47 Chinese Yuan and at 15.21 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 73 pence to the British pound and 82 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,830, platinum at $1,075 per ounce, and Brent crude oil is at $55.17 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard.
And now for your latest sport, here's Musibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fan. Japan's minister, or rather Prime Minister, Yoshidi Suga has vowed to forge ahead with preparations to hold the Tokyo Olympics this year in the face of growing public opposition as Japan battles a surge in coronavirus infections. Suga faces heightened um, scrutiny after Taro Kano, his administrative and reform minister, told the media last week that the Games may not go ahead as planned, becoming the first cabinet member to voice doubt over the staging of the global showpiece. Kono's comments added fuel to the fire after recent media polls showed close to 80% of Japanese people believe that the Olympics, already postponed by a year because of the pandemic, should be delayed again or cancelled entirely. Now, Japan has been less severely hit by the pandemic than many other advanced economies, but the recent surge in cases spurred the government to close its borders to non-resident foreigners and declare state of emergency in Tokyo and other major cities. On to tennis news, more players have been forced into hard quarantine ahead of the Australian Open, with officials confirming on Monday that four additional participants, including an athlete, tested positive for COVID-19 among those arriving in Melbourne. Now, health authorities in Victoria State have now reported nine infections among passengers who arrived on charter flights ahead of the Australian Open, taking place from the 8th up until the 21st of February. Now, passengers on three Australian Open Open charter flights were sent into hard quarantine, including over 70 players who will be unable to train for 14 days ahead of this year's first Grand Slam tournament. Meanwhile, players have come up with unique ways to pass time and stay fit in isolation, with some hitting balls against a mattress and running sprints in corridors. Others are allowed five hours outside their hotel rooms each day for preparation, in line with the arrangements made by organisers of a Tennis Australia, as well as health authorities. Meanwhile, the Davis Cup finals will be expanded to an 11-day event and could not, or rather could in future, be staged in three different cities. The first edition was a week-long event, but this year's finals will take place over 11 days between the 25th of November up until the 5th of December. And the 18 teams will be involved, or rather the 18 teams will be involved this year and that uh, the team uh, number will be reduced to 16 in the 2022 competition. Now, a decision about a whether to introduce three host cities will be taken by the ITF by March. A bidding process is already underway with COVID-19 contingency plan, an important element of this year's event. On to football news, the chairperson of the Nigerian Women's Football League, Aisha Falode, at the weekend announced an additional one-month postponement of the Nigerian Women's Football League season in a frantic bid to ensure strict compliance with COVID-19 pre- uh, preventative protocols that were established before the league started on the 9th of December. Channel Africa's Tony Obani has more on the story. Falode said from, the, from her base in Lagos that the irregularities and discoveries made during the one-week postponement of the Week 5 matches to allow clubs carry out their COVID-19 tests for all their players and officials led to the decision. She disclosed that feedback from one-week suspension to allow for COVID-19 retesting by clubs exposed flaws in complying with the NWFL directives. 
after due consultations it has been agreed that a further one month period should be given to allow for due diligence by all the clubs and stakeholders for strict compliance and uh, finally kenya have had their bid to host the next round of FIBA AfroBasket group qualifying matches rejected as Cameroon and Tunisia have been chosen to stage the tournament set to take place from the 17th up until the 21st of February. Channel Africa's Francis Motegi reports. Group A, D and E will play in Monastir, while B and C will be based in Yaoundé between February 19 and 21st. Kenya is in Group B together with Senegal, Mozambique and Angola. FIBA Africa says the most important criteria in choosing the host, like for the previous window, was health and travel guarantees and compliance with FIBA health protocols, including testing and controlled entry into a secure environment. Kenya Basketball Federation confirmed they had bid to host, but they now will switch focus towards preparing the national team, the Morans, for a successful search for a ticket to the 30th edition of the FIBA Afro Basketball Tournament in Kigali, Rwanda. And those are your sports news at the hour. This is Africa Digest. That wraps up this hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us again in an hour's time from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective. Taking us to the top of the hour is more Wab by Jonas Gwanga. We'll see you later. Mm-hmm.